This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 121. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. Uh, so, Foolman, how have you been doing these last couple of weeks? I've been keeping well, as well as can be expected, because once again, the world is going to hell in some new and particularly pointed way, it feels like. So, yeah, but I'm good. How about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty pretty much the same. It's We're getting into, I mean, summer's like, you know, well and truly gone at this point. Mm-hmm. We probably had the last really nice day in southern Ontario um, on Friday in terms of weather. And... Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a rough winter. It's, it's going to be, be a terrible. Rough Do you ever think about what if you know civilization collapses, which seems like really plausible at this point, and uh, then somehow one of the few relics some future civilization finds is our podcast, and like we would keep these, alluding. These guys really hated Rasmus Verstelainen. Yeah, <laughs> they were crazy about it. That must have been a pressing social issue. As far as issue. we could tell, Rasmus Verstelainen was a dictator who was responsible <laughs> for the deaths of millions. <laughs> But, like, we would keep alluding to it, but then we were always like, but now back to the leaves. It's like, were the leaves a religious thing? And it's like, well, sort of. But, um, anyway, these are the things that I think about. But the leaves have actually done things mm-hmm. as they kind of, I would say, wrapped up what is likely to be their off-season for transactional purposes. Yep. Uh, three contracts for players. One new position for someone in the front office. So do you want to get rolling on that with the big boy, Joe Thornton? Yeah, Joe Thornton. So one very simple contract. One year, league minimum, 700K. No move clause. That's it. Done and done. It's, um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I. it's very hard to have a negative opinion on this. And I, I mean, I guess there... So I was a little bit negative on Wayne Simmons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think a lot of people can kind of mentally put Simmons and Thornton as like, okay, old Toronto guy past his prime coming home um, for a one-year low-cost deal. There's a few differences. Mm-hmm. One, I mean, Joel Thornton had – Wayne Simmons was a great player in his prime. Joel Thornton is one of the 100 greatest players of all time, even though he didn't make the NHL's official list. Yeah. Right? I think like, Joe Thornton is probably in the top three playmakers who have played in the NHL in this century. Yeah, pro- probably the – you could argue he's the best passer since Gretzky. Seriously, like, in terms of just pure capacity to set guys up, he's unbelievable. You, you know, Sidney Crosby I would have above him, but Crosby does other things. But, as, you know, as a playmaker, Joe Thornton has, like, almost no superiors and very few equals ever. Yeah, he's so truly, truly great. I, I guess, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying he's the best player since Gretzky. Like, obviously, you, lots yeah. of guys that can be Lemieux, Crosby, Fedorov, Datsuk, whatever. But certainly one of the best passers you know of his generation or of any generation really um mm-hmm. so he's declining from you know a very very high height uh, he still seems to be relatively decent uh by most measures and it, yeah. it's interesting because you know he, he's never been a defensive or seen as a defensive dynamo or anything like that and you know as he ages you're no longer expecting him to be your 1c so to what extent can you justify sheltering him versus you know maybe taking those shifts away from Matthews or Tavares but you know nonetheless in uh that's a question we'll get into but nonetheless over his last few years in San Jose while clearly not what he once was he's still a pretty useful player mm-hmm. one who still seems to drive possession 
uh, one who does not shoot at all ever. Like if Alex Kerfoot annoyed you with his lack of shooting, then Joe Thornton is, is going to astound you. Oh yeah, he seems to have no interest in it whatsoever. There will absolutely be a time where he's on a two-on-one with someone. Let's say someone who like probably shouldn't be shooting on the Leafs. Who who who's a forward who shouldn't be shooting on the Leafs? Uh, like, it's too bad Freddie Goche is gone. But, yeah, yeah, uh, he, he was always the go-to, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> but let's say he'll be somehow be on a, a two-on-one with Pierre Engvall. You know, mm. not not a great shooter or anything. And Thornton will absolutely just pass it to him no matter what. <laughs> he he yeah. doesn't shoot. He doesn't shoot. Um, but yeah, like you know, he he's still a good player. And this is eight hundred thousand dollars cheaper than the Wayne Simmons deal, right? So this is kind of. When I talked about the Wayne Simmons, when I said, "Oh, I think there are better options," something like this, I think, was a better option. Now, obviously, they're clearly not mutually exclusive, but mm-hmm. that's kind of why I was—I'm harsher on the Simmons deal than I am here. Not to say the Simmons deal is bad, not to rehash, you know, our podcast from two weeks ago, but I wanted to make that note because there are obviously parallels between the signing of Simmons and the signing of Thornton. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's, it's a short deal, literally as low risk as it possibly could be, mm-hmm. and. Thornton still seems to be a useful player, so I'm happy to have him. Yeah, it would. it's li- almost impossible to be mad about this. Mm-hmm. Because, like, what are the consequences? I suppose, theoretically, uh, it's not variable because it's an over 35. But, like, Joe Thornton was still a top-nine player last year. And even granted, he's now at an age where it, almost everyone who's his chronological peer is retired. Right. But, in a but, sense, this also means that you, you clearly can't use traditional aging curves with Joe Thornton. Yeah, like, tra- we don't know... aging curves yeah. say he should be a husk in the ground at this point. Yeah, exactly. Like, the only other guy who would be older than him is Chara, and we don't even know if Zidane Chara is coming back. And for a million obvious reasons also, Zidane Chara is not comparable to ordinary humans. And so, yeah, Joe Thornton is kind of in a class of his own. We do know he's at an age where it can end pretty fast like we don't know when you know the end is going to come for him in a, in a career sense he's obviously shown signs of decline but at the same time you take you take this deal all day like you really just can't um object to it in any rational manner because again it's so low risk he's still competent i don't think we should expect him to be a world beater by any means, I think that should be obvious. But, like, it is worth noting, he's not what he once was. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. He doesn't have to be. But I'm thinking, like, Joe Thornton as, like, a pretty slow 3C who can still pass well is about what we're going to get here. Yeah, so do you think... Uh, that was the next question I was going to ask. Do you think he's going to play third-line center? This is my instinct, and, uh, you know, Kevin Papetti and I were discussing this, and Kevin was like, well, and I can certainly see scenarios where he doesn't. Sheldon Keefe will move players around. I don't think Joe Thornton signed to be a fourth liner. I think he still thinks, correctly, that he has more to give than that. So he's going to be in the top nine somewhere, probably. And then you get into a question of, okay, would you prefer to move him to the wing? Which he's capable of doing. If it comes to that. Played there internationally. Yeah. Although, um, you know, that was four years ago at this point. 
God, time flies. But uh, yeah, so that's certainly something that you can consider depending on how you like the look of your various wings. He presumably would be playing on the left because that's the spot more likely to open up, but who knows what will happen with injuries. Um, and yeah, so I don't necessarily object to that and saying, okay, maybe you run Thornton, Kerfoot, Simmons as a, a fascinating third line. But I do think that he's primarily a center. I think we got him to be a center. I'm not sure the Leafs are entirely enamored of Kerfoot as a center. Right, I, which, which yeah. we've discussed this before. It continues to be a little bit odd to, I think, the both of us, where I, I feel like we, we defend Kerfoot in, in so often that it makes it seem like we're super fans of him. And I don't think we are. We think he's decent. He's fine. He's an eminently fine player. It, yeah, it's just like I don't, I don't see the um, pressing need to to shift him off the third line center. And there's been this like these constant discussions of like, you know, Kerfoot really looked best at the wing. And so, well, I mean, for one, I think that's people often state that as a fact, and I think that's an opinion. And I know a lot of people don't necessarily share it. We talked about it with Katya, and she she thought Kerfoot wasn't particularly good at the wing, mm-hmm. and you know, she's as as astute a hockey observer as anyone. Um, and then secondarily, when he played wing, he was often with, you know, John Tavares and William Nylander. Right. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I would expect him to look better at the wing. And again, this is another point Katya raised. Like, wing is like basically strictly easier than center. There are very few players who don't look better at wing because there are le- less responsibilities, typically. Yeah, like, there are very few guys who are better at center than they are at wing. And the ones who are are like... Face-off specialists. Yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe someone like Thornton actually would fit in that. Not necessarily as a face-off specialist, but as someone where um, his his lack of foot speed probably becomes a little bit more exposed on the wing. Yeah, right. That's arguably true, and you know he's going to be. I mean, it, it's worth noting two prime physical facts about Thornton at this point: are he's still huge, and he's quite slow. He was never fast, and some people say, well. His game was never speed-reliant, even at its peak. You know, his big thing is that he's extremely hard to knock off the puck because, C.A., he's huge. And he's got terrific vision so he can make a pass from pretty much anywhere. And you can say, well, those things should stay. They're still there. But such speed as he possessed is pretty much gone now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at some point this year, Joe Thornton's probably going to get walked. Let's be real. Um, just the nature of the NHL now is very fast and he isn't. And that's okay. That's something you accept as part of the, the whole Joe Thornton experience. But all of that does add up to me to say, I think the intention is to put him at three C. I don't think you have to, but I think that that's probably where he starts. Yeah. And it's worth noting he, he wasn't like a, he as he played like a middle six center last year and was mm-hmm. fine. And the year before he played um, quite well, actually. He had very, very good numbers uh, in 2018-2019. Of course, that's basically two years ago at this point. Um, but, you know, he was quite good there. And he, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't completely bet against the... Um, bet against the option of him kind of returning to that form. It's not a guarantee, but for 700K, it's certainly possible, right? So, yeah, I, I think he and 
Kerfoot will probably split that third line spot, at least initially. Like, it'll be kind of a bit of a rotation. We've seen Keith isn't afraid to, to move things around a little bit. Um, the thing is, I don't know if I want them on the same line because Kerfoot's not much of a shooter either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kerfoot, Kerfoot is more of a shooter than people think. Like, he's not at... He, his individual expected goal rate is actually not that bad at all. But he takes relatively few shots and from quite good locations, right? He kind of does the Bozak thing. It's worth noting that Joe Thornton, actually, his finishing is still fine. It's because he only shoots if he's pretty confident it's a good chance of being a goal. But, yeah, just a distinction that I wanted to make there. He basically doesn't shoot is the point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I mean, in theory, and by theory I mean the past, uh, Thornton and Simmons would have seemed like a natural fit. Because one of them loves shooting and one of them does not. But mm-hmm. loves passing. Uh, as we talked about with Simmons, his personal shot generation is down. And Thornton is no longer quite what he was. But we might see that kind of reprised. And we'll see if they both have enough in the tank to make that as exciting as it would have been at one point. Yeah. I, I think maybe the more natural fit in terms of playing style with Thornton might be Jimmy VC. Yeah, that's an interesting point. VC's no burner by any means. He's also <laughs> kind of a big boy. But he likes to go to the front of the net and shoot. Yeah, he, he's a relatively good shot generator, right? And mm-hmm. I remember seeing, um, I think a Buffalo fan said this on either Twitter. Uh, I think it was Twitter. I think that's where I saw it. But um, they, they said, you know, VC's really good at getting to the front of the net and not scoring. <laughs> but, that's what you want. <laughs> but that, that's what we, we talked about this, that Micah McCurdy tweet before. <laughs> Where that's what third liners do, right? If they were if they got to the front and scored, they'd be second liners, mm-hmm. right? Or first liners. So, yeah, VC might be a, a decent fit there. Um, and then on the right side, you know, who knows what you do? There, there, there's, there's, there's a ton of options. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you, you, you could put Simmons there, but then where that would give Kerfoot the chance to reprise his role as the second line left wing, right? Um, or you could put, sorry, Maka- you could put either, uh, you could put Mikhaev on the right of that third line instead of Simmons, put Simmons on the fourth and uh, Kerfoot on second line left wing. There's a lot of options if you put Thornton at 3C. Um, right. Now, if you put, if Thornton does get, dem- say, demoted to, to 4C, it's kind of a bit weird because he's in this like platoon with, with Jason Spezza who, you know, they're, they're not completely similar players, but, there's certainly a lot of parallels between them. <laughs> Extremely old pass-first guys who are kind of slow now. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, yep. it, it, it almost makes sense there. It, you can do a center platoon kind of easily there because one's a left shot and one's a right shot. Mm. Um, but, man, that's a, that's a slow fourth line. <laughs> yeah, that's a real slow fourth line. And it's also, you know, such value as they both possess at this point in time is still kind of passing an offensive, right? Like... You want I to know. play them with someone who can at least get decent shots. But, like, so maybe, maybe you do a, something that I think would in, immediately be, like, a Leafs Twitter fan favorite line. Like, th- this line will get so much love if this happens. Mm. But you put Robertson, Thornton, Spezza. Yeah. And you can... It's not hard to dream up a scenario where that works. Mm-hmm. You know, by any means. And Robertson is going to have the time of his young life, probably, just firing off pucks left and right. 
Yeah, like, <laughs> they will tell him, okay, kid, we're going to get you 25 goals somehow. Do you <laughs> like shooting? Good news. You're going to play 12 minutes a night and lead the league in goals per 60. That's the plan. <laughs> That's the dream. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of options, and we can certainly see how this develops. If there's anything we know about Sheldon Keefe, it's that he likes trying things, and he's rather fond of the high session on his line blender. So, yeah, I think that this is almost an impossible-to-object-to signing. Literally, the only problem it could be is if he's displacing someone who is clearly better than him from, like, the lineup entirely. I think. And our center depth is not such that that is a problem. Yeah. So. And the, the biggest thing is it gives us more options, right? Like, there, there's a mm-hmm. lot of ways that this can be played. Um, and people get hurt. Ways. It's worth knowing. Yes, ab- so. absolutely. A lot of ways this can go in terms of lineup construction. So, um, it'll be very interesting to see that, I, I, I guess. Uh, now, the one the thing I, I'm kind of curious about... And this is a question that Kevin asked me. I didn't have a you know amazing answer. Is do you, like which Leafs centers will get more defensive zone starts or shift starts, let's say, than offensive? Yeah, and that's a tough question there because I mean, do you want Joe Thornton doing that at this point in his life? Probably mm-hmm. not. Uh, and then Matthews and Tavares are not incapable of that especially Tavares he's like he stood against tough lines and survived right but you you want but, to you want to maximize their offensive opportunity because you know mm-hmm. Austin Matthews now is of a similar caliber player to Joe Thornton in his prime right like or, like that's the idea anyways right right that that's that's taking it that's very strong obviously Thor- Thornton had a much higher peak than Matthews has, has shown as of yet which is says more about Thornton than Matthews to be clear yeah. um but yeah, like you know, you're you're paying those guys twenty two million or however much it is because they are going to drive your offense. So you you want to give them the chance to do so. Um, so yeah, like how, how does that happen? We we don't we still don't have kind of a, a depth line that is going to match up against top end lines, and uh, that's not incredibly common league wide. Like not a lot of teams have it. Boston was one of them when they had Sean Corrali at center. Mm-hmm. I know I don't know if this was the case last year, but I know one of the years we faced them in the playoffs. Uh, Corrali was that rare fourth line guy who actually matched up quite a bit against top competition and did reasonably well. Yes, and I unfortunately tended to underestimate him uh, because I thought, well, he's a fourth liner. Mostly they do fourth line stuff, and he is the exception. Uh, Johan Larson, who I, I think we've probably daydreamed enough about now, who went on and signed in Arizona, uh, he also is that kind of guy. If you can get a depth center who can slow the game down against top lines. That's very valuable. Riley Nash was another one, also yeah. Boston. Mm-hmm. I, I'm mentioning all these Boston guys because they kind, kind of come to mind immediately as like guys who you're like, oh, we should win that matchup, and then they, they just slow it down to a crawl when it's Tavares versus Riley Nash somehow. Yeah, and so I think there's an argument here. We're a top six, bottom six team now. We have what we have. We don't have an obvious shutdown center. We've got offense at a certain point you just say like kind of fuck line matching and go you know like yeah and i think one thing that is worth noting last year um is that the the more defensive usage came from the bottom lines right so mm-hmm. um Kerfoot and spezza 
were, were I think, around parity in terms of their offensive zone charts to their defensive zone starts. Right. Um, and the Leafs got more offensive zone starts as a whole than they had defensive zone starts because of the system, generally speaking. And, you know, the fact that they're above, an above-average team. Mm-hmm. So I expect we see kind of the same thing this year. Uh, Kerfoot will maybe get his usage a bit more defensive if he does stick at center. Um, but even otherwise, I think, you know, Thornton and... If Thornton's the 3C and Spets is the 4C, I expect both of them to have... I expect neither of them to get particularly sheltered zone usage. And again, right. it's worth noting, last couple of years, it's not like Thornton has been a sheltered fourth-line center at all. He's been kind of an average middle-six center in terms right. of his usage. It, it's, it hasn't been particularly um, sheltered in, in, in any way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you put all that together, and it's an unimpeachable signing. It yep. gives us options. It's too cheap to be in any way objectionable. And while I think the sentimental attraction to do the Joe Thornton trade is strong, like a lot of people have grown up admiring him, he's old enough that literally a lot of present-day fans grew up watching him for the last 20 years. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people are very excited that a player of his caliber, even at this age is coming home and clearly views the Leafs as at least a potential cup contender. There, there was that funny quote of, um, you know, he Gorton was asked why he came here and he said, Oh, you know, I really like their goaltender, which seems like, a, <laughs> which seems like he's not getting a Christmas card from Martin Jones. Yeah. But on the other hand, if I were Joe Thornton, I would be tired of Martin Jones too. Yeah. Like I gotta be real. <laughs> like, I'm a patient man, but at a certain point, I would be like, could you just stop the puck, please? Uh, anyway, yeah, so, you know, he thought that they were a good team, a team worth signing with. I don't think that this vaults us up the levels of contention, but I think it makes us better. Yeah, gives us more options, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it, it's reasonable filling out of the depth, and you literally cannot do it any cheaper than we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I... This goes back to our overall philosophy of, of team building that the Leafs have committed to, which is that, you know, Joel Thornton is like, if everything works out, he's going to be one of the most efficient contracts in the league, right? Mm-hmm. A team full of Joel Thornton contracts is not going to be very good because right. you can't stack 45 of them to get the amount of wins you need on one roster. But mm-hmm. when you have those star players who soak up a lot of wins on one roster spot, these are the types of efficient contracts that you can sign and it supplements them really well. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I'm positive about it. I just, I would note, father time is undefeated, as the cliche goes. And Joe Thornton's at an age where, who knows? He, he could stop being good for literally any reason. Yeah. But, Like, yeah, it's it, just, that's all it will take. And, you know, that's just the risk that you take, signing a guy who's 42. Yeah. So. Oh, actually, so before we move on to Mikheyev. Um, it's been so long since I've watched the Leafs play that I forget if he's pronounced Mikheyev or Mikhaev at this point. I think it's Mikheyev. Um, I'm probably not to be trusted with Russian pronunciations, as history has taught us. So Yeah, Mickey. I hope they're okay. right. So yeah, before we Mickey. talk about Mickey, the, the one thing I want to say is, like, the, the Leafs are really not a fast team at all anymore. I wouldn't say really. No. I, I mean... For, for so long, yeah. we kind of had the Leafs be typified by their offense and by this, okay, you know, they have kind of searing speed, this quick strike attack, especially under Babcock, where we, um, you know, use the, the the boogeyman of the stretch pass. Remember yeah. those days when we were arguing about stretch passes? 
Oh. Uh, simpler times. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, particularly under Babcock, we were considered a very fast team, a team that tried to use its winger speed and um, the relatively good passing that we got from players like Jake Gardner mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, leverage that to high-level offense. And by and large, I think that was a fairly accurate description of, of the team. Um, certainly we weren't a team full of burners, but we, we played fast, and when we were at our best, we were really stretching teams both vertically and horizontally. Now, mm-hmm. under Keefe, that has changed. This is not necessarily a value judgment of, oh, fast is good and slow is bad. There are many ways to be a good team, many ways to be a good offensive team. Keefe's is more focused on control, mm-hmm. right? More focused on control, on position, on uh, g- kind of creating offense within almost a, a half-court offense that you would see in an NBA game, right? Where you have the puck in the zone and you're trying to breach uh, another team's structure. That's kind of what the Leafs are, are toted towards now, just because they don't have guys who are going to create uh, those rush chances out of essentially nothing, or at least not as many as they did. Both Janssen and Kapanen were relatively quick um, and were able to do that at, at reasonable rates for, for guys in their lineup position. Thornton, even through his career, has been quite the opposite, right? And... and Spezza is, is similar. They're, they're all about having the puck on their stick, controlling the flow of the game mm-hmm. through um, their passing, through their movement, and slowing the game down while still being effective. So it, that's a stylistic thing. And this roster now very much seems like it's molded in the style that Keefe seems to want to implement uh, of that kind of controlled offensive zone possession. Right. And so we've talked a lot about the Keefe system throughout the year. Uh, the emphasis on having a third man high and sort of the forwards rotating and being willing to sustain possession by moving around, letting the defense jump up, all that good stuff. I think, you know, having watched teams that were probably slower than us kind of make us look silly at times in the last few years. A lot of people will welcome this change. You know, I'm thinking of Boston, and we always seem to have a hard time with St. Louis, who are not a team of burners either. But, yeah, it is a change, and you're going to realize at some point maybe that the Leafs aren't getting a ton of breakaways or anything like Asbury Kapanen used to provide. And that's okay, but it's it's it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. So, we'll see how it pans out. Yeah, one of the few Leafs players who still does have kind of kind of brings that element is is the aforementioned Ilya Mikheyev. Yes, because Mikheyev is still willing to shoot up the wings and then fire off a maybe low percentage shot. <laughs> and so he's sort of the heir to Kapanen in some ways. But the Leafs signed him preempting arbitration to a deal of two years at an average annual value of 1.685, I believe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, apparently, one, Mikhaev could have gotten more in the KHL. This is as reported. 645, sorry, not 685. Uh, I apologize. 645. So apparently, Mikhaev could have gotten more in the KHL. Apparently, also, and this is a bit of an odd story, but it was reported that the deal was agreed to, and then Kaldubas called back and said, hey, sorry, can you take this so that we can get compliant for opening night? And it was a weird story. One, it was obviously leaked agent side by Dan Milstein. It makes his player look a little better. We don't know the amount involved. I suspect it would be trivial if this were the case. But also, 
it talked about the Leafs getting compliant for opening night, which they're not going to have too much trouble doing regardless. It, it's and make, which, if it's yeah. true, it makes Kyle Dubas seem like a bit of a dumbass, to be honest. And I, and I don't yeah. fully, as for you know the I think reasonable criticisms we've had of him, I don't think either of us thinks he's a dumbass. Yeah, I mean, you should know how much money you need going into a negotiation, and you shouldn't come to an agreement if you don't have the money for it. it it's not like, oh, whoops, that's that I missed out on that. You know, I missed a zero here. Like that, <laughs> that's not an acceptable error for a GM. So. Yeah. I'm inclined to think that this is just some weird agent spin. I don't... It, it almost doesn't make sense. If, if for it to be true, a lot of other things would have to be true that are kind of out there. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the other thing, is if you look at the Leafs now, and they hadn't signed Travis Dermott by then, but they have they have enough space to run a 21-man pretty comfortably, mm-hmm. and it they're not going to run a 22-man. So I don't know what small amount of money would have been making the difference here. But whatever, anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is that Ilya Mikhaev, I think, showed as a decent NHL player in the sample we had of him. He might have ran a little hot and captured imaginations right before that injury, and the sample isn't very large. But I think it's more likely that Mikhaev outperforms this deal than that he underperforms it. Yeah, he performed, I think, like a league average player for the most part. Um Played a lot of third line minutes uh, until his until his injury, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, there there isn't a huge track record post injury, right? And it was a very scary injury where his his hand got cut, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of nerves there. Hands are useful for hockey, from what I understand of the sport. <laughs> As a Freddie Gauthier fan, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, like it, there's obviously a little bit of concern there. Um, I also think even independent of kind of his recovery from injury and any sort of, um, any sort of rust that may have played in, especially for him particularly more so than others, because it had been longer since he had played. I think Columbus was a kind of terrible matchup for his style of hockey because he really struggles, um, when it comes to, I guess, I guess the way I would put it is at decision-making within the offensive zone. Mm-hmm. He, he's a bit of a one-track mind, right? He, he's excellent at getting into p- good positions, but then when he gets there, he, he doesn't read the play at the level of elite NHL players, which is fine, right? If he, if, you know, that's, every, every player has lost. Um, and Columbus, as a team that does not surrender many great rush chances, uh, as a team that kind of forces you to play against their set defense, that's the kind of team that I expect him to struggle against. Right, mm-hmm. and I think even independent of that, he he struggled, um, like even more than we would expect. But I'm not willing to throw away, you know, the forty odd games that we that we do have on the thirty nine odd games that we have on him, um, and say that because of that injury and because of a poor five games against Columbus, that he is not a what I think he is a good NHL winger, like a, a round average NHL winger. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, if it were more certain that he was really good, he would cost more money. Mm-hmm. And that seems kind of obvious, but the fact remains, you don't generally get even good NHL wingers of his age at $1.645 million a year. And so, yeah, there is some chance that he was a flash in the pan, and that this deal is going to end up having some excess 
of a few hundred thousand dollars, and that would suck. But you have to make intelligent bets, and this one seems to me like a pretty obviously good one. It has the potential to pay dividends. If he's giving something like three or 3.5 million of value on the second year of this thing, we'll be over the moon. And yeah. I don't think that's totally out of the question. Yeah, I was hoping this would come in a little cheaper from a team perspective, but, you know, it, it, it's fine. And I, I, I thought, you know, if it came in, if it, let's say they settled around the midpoint of the team's ask and Mikheyev's ask, which would have been about $1.8 million. Mm-hmm. That would have been a little trickier. Like, do, do you consider making a trade, like trading him at that point at that number? Is it too high for you? Or um, would you just try and shuffle other people around if you have to? I mean, the question is, if it gets to the point where I can't run a 21-man anymore, mm-hmm. that bothers me. Yeah. And so I probably start getting a bit like, okay, do I want to stick with this? Beyond that, I don't really care. I actually, I wouldn't say I'm like a full-on gung-ho Makai believer, but I like him, and I think that he's a good, competent winger in the mm-hmm. top nine. And so, I, you know, I'm willing to pay probably even a few hundred thousand more for that. Uh, just based on the bargaining situation, I'm glad we didn't do that. But in terms of the abstract of what he's worth, like when do I really get concerned about it? It's higher than this. So, yeah, I don't think I would be even that eager to trade him at 1.8. Yeah, um, that, that's fair. I think my, my initial gut instinct at 1.8 was, oh, maybe, maybe that's a bit rich. Maybe we should trade him. But like you said, maybe, it probably only makes sense if it prevents us from running, you know, the roster we want. Mm-hmm. Um, one nice thing about Mikhaev, he can and does play both wings. He, he was more effective, certainly, on, on, on I, I remember him being a little bit more effective um, on the right side. At least that, that could just be my memory. I'm very bad at remembering wings, so I could be wrong about that. And if you look at his shot plot, it's like there's basically no positional bias to it ever. He's an equal opportunity shooter. He will shoot from anywhere. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care what wing he's on. Um, that probably comes somewhat from being a rush merchant, right? Like you're yeah. not coming in set up and going to your your general wing. You're coming in full bore and saying, woo! And, you know, for the record, if Mikhaev does have a clear offensive flaw, it's that there's a big flashing light in his head that says, shoot, at all times. And that, you know, at, at some point, he's going to throw away a possession a little bit by just sort of firing a low-hope shot, and I don't love it. I'm willing to put up with it more from a forward, and I'm not saying I think that he's you know a bad shooter by any means it's just something that's going to be a bit of an issue yeah yeah exactly um but i mean when you look at his year last year on the whole he was moved around a fair bit and you know part part of his moving to left wing at times was was because of injury was it not i think we considered him as a left winger for most of it just because that was where there were more openings yeah yeah captain all right Mm-hmm. But then when Nylander shifted to left wing, I'm trying to remember if that coincided with his injury or not. I, I don't remember. But that actually might have been because of his injury. I, I don't know. It's been so long. It's been a year. I, it's I've been a hundred years. So We've lived it. a terrible life. Um, but, yeah, so, so he's ambi-winged. He's more likely to play the left wing than the right, I think, just because mm-hmm. of how things have shaken out. But it's not another question. And so, like, I just... 
you know, if you balance the, okay, in how many of these scenarios is he not worth this, and how many is he worth it, and how many is he worth more, I think excuse positive for the Leafs. I think the player wanted to be here, and I think that there's a positive relationship there. I'm glad that they were able to come to a deal without having to go to arbitration. Yeah, which, which tends can to leave really yeah. sour the, uh, the, the relationship. Yeah, there are many stories of hurt feelings resulting from that that can even at some point have consequences. So they, they clearly like him. He seems to like it here. Great. So, yeah. I, again, I don't think that that's like a marvelous piece of general management by Kyle Dubas where it's like he's seeing three and four moves ahead. Mm-hmm. I think he had one of those this offseason and it was the Capitan trade and he did really well there and that's fine. But, you know, like, this is a good piece of business. It's it's decent and fine. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then, are we good to go to Travis Dermott? Um, so before we do, I guess, yeah. let's, let's to wrap up on the forwards. How, how would you line up the forwards uh, if you were, you know, the coach? So I think the top line should be Hyman, Matthews, Nylander, although the wingers can flip depending on preference. Apparently Nylander likes left wing and Hyman shoots right, so not a problem. I would start with Mikhaev, with Tavares and Marner. They had a great run during this season doing that, and while they were probably running a little hot and it wasn't as great against Columbus, I'd still be willing to go back to that for a little bit. And then on my third line, I'm probably looking at Kerfoot, Thornton, Simmons. Which is a bit of an awkward fit, but I'm willing to audition any of VC, Barabanov, any of those players. Uh, The fourth line is basically whoever is left, and, you know, that depends almost entirely on who wins training camp battles, but tentatively, I'll say that Engvall and Spezza are definitely there, and then maybe Nick Robertson, if you think it's still worth it to play him fourth line. Right. Do you have okay. any thoughts on that? Or... Um, I, I I do think I prefer Kerfoot at center. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, it's a. I guess you have him on the third line with Thornton, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they they can swap there. I don't I don't think Thornton. I don't think that line's probably not going to get super defensive usage. Um. So and I don't think. Thornton would be completely out of place on a third line like that. I just question whether he and Kerfoot specifically are a, a good match. They're a bit awkward, but then you got into the problem of, okay, so where do they go? Now you can say, I'll move Kerfoot up to two, second left wing or Thornton, and I'll move Mikhaev down. And Mikhaev is certainly more shot happy, mm-hmm. and he adds maybe a bit of speed, especially if you're concerned about the line with Thornton on it being slow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I... I would be open to that. Um, I've I've mostly started with what works, but again, Sheldon Keefe, I'm sure, will try things. And if he thinks that uh, he's getting better results another way, he's not going to hesitate and stick with Old Faithful. So, we'll see. Yeah, very true. Um, okay, so I guess my thoughts, it's a little bit different, but I think all of this is, it's highly variable. I don't think there is a lot of like, obviously dumb options um right. I, let so 
the first line is Hyman Matthews, one of Nylander and Marner. Don't care which. Mm-hmm. Um, right? If it's Marner, then I guess he's more stapled to to the right side, and Hyman goes over to the left. If it's Nylander, as you said, there, there can be a little flexibility in terms of who plays where, which I think matters more defensively than offensively. Right. Um, for the second line, I wonder if we go, you know, VC, Tavares, then whichever of the other right wingers, uh, whichever who's not on the first line, so either Nylander or Marner. And the reason to put VC there is that I think he can sort of ride shotgun with decent players, right? The, the whole point of mm-hmm. having these stars is that we don't need to invest heavily in that third guy on the line. That third guy can be just a guy. It's not that I think VC is particularly good. It's that I think he will be fine enough. Um, and then the third line, I wonder if we could... And, and I guess labeling it third and fourth line might be a little bit uh, misleading here because my initial thought would be can we kind of play our bottom two lines in pretty similar amounts where you have one that's tilted slightly more defensively and one that's tilted slightly more offensively. And the more defensive one would be something like Engvall, uh, Kerfoot, Mikheyev. And I guess there Mikheyev's mm-hmm. playing on the right. And as you said, um, he mostly played on the left last year. And I don't remember specifically how well he did on the right, but I remember that Kerfoot and Mikheyev together generally did pretty well. And that could be a bit more of a defensive um, third line. That One of the lines that actually does have a bit of speed with Engvall and, and uh, Mikheyev uh, in terms of the kind of combinations of depth players. And then the fourth line, you go Thornton Spetson, th- sorry, Thornton Spetsa and Robertson or, you know, my boy Nick Patan or, you know, Joey Anderson or whoever. Yeah, they've got a lot of guys. And, yeah. and, you know, the only thing that I worry about is like trying to do an approximately balanced bottom six is you probably end up underplaying your better players but if you think that it's like a really even but distribution yeah, I, I, I down there there's a huge that there's a huge difference yeah. in ability between you know Engvall and uh Spezza let's say or or you know Thornton and uh and McKay like I think they're all roughly they're all in that kind of big glut of NHL players who are good or who are you know passable in, in reasonable death roles yeah look I mean after the top five ish forwards on the team you can rearrange the remaining six or seven, depending it's very on how flat. you want to set it up. Yeah, it is, it is very flat. And so what I honestly think is going to happen is that some of these guys are going to distinguish themselves early on, and mm-hmm. then probably a couple of them will turn out not to have it, or not to find a good fit, or whatever else. And so that, I think, will be what really makes the decision for us. You know, it, it's fun to you know kind of plot this out in advance, but it, a lot is going to depend on training camp. Yeah. And so, you know, I I know that said, like, Thornton and Simmons are going to get rope, for sure. Oh, I didn't even mention Simmons. Okay, put him on the fourth line. Sorry. Robertson. <laughs> I'm sorry. See, there yeah, are too many was, of these guys. That, that was just a complete brain fart. There, I mean, there is a parade down there. And I think that what Kyle Dubas has probably concluded is that these depth guys, some of them work out, some of them won't. You can't constantly find above average depth guys mm-hmm. without any misses. It's yeah, just absolutely. very hard to do. So things are going to change. Yeah. And so some of these aren't going to work out. And that's the point. The point is that we don't have to keep most of the ones who don't work out. And a lot of them are quite cheap. Again, Simmons is not, which suggests that we're more committed to the bet there. Yeah. But... Uh, Spezza Simmons line is a real, you know, <laughs> first line 2012 type of deal. Yeah. And it's easy to kind of, 
mock that, but who knows? Maybe there's something there. Anyway, yeah, you know, I think that it's positive. There are a lot of good elements there if you were trying to just give yourself options on the cheap. And there's certainly a lot of outcomes here that are very possible. But the Leafs have a good bottom six. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they lost talent. I don't think that that's deniable. It doesn't have to go all the way into, oh, now we have to keen and cry about the loss of Andreas Janssen and Kasperi Kapanen or anything. But they were probably better players than the ones that we're going to have down there at this point in time. Right. The, the, the issue was that last year, neither of them really performed to the level that we wanted. Right? So yeah. there's kind of two different but related questions where are the Leafs better... Are the Leafs going to get better production out of their depth players than they did last year? And I think mm-hmm. the answer to that could reasonably be expected to be yes, because our depth players weren't very good last year. We've mm-hmm. upgraded on some, and the ones that we haven't upgraded on in talent had down years in terms of actual production. So there's like a low bar to clear there. Um, but then maybe the, the more relevant question is, would the Leafs have performed better, um, or would their third line and fourth line have gotten better um, based on the moves that they've made versus if they hadn't traded away Janssen and Kapanen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there, the answer is that they pro- we probably would have gotten better results out of those two this year than we will out of kind of the glut of people who are playing those roles um, that we have on the team now. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, those moves to get rid of them were bad because we use those to upgrade the defense. Right. And I think it is worth noting what we would have gotten out of them this year is not the same as what Pittsburgh and New Jersey are going to get out of them because... Mm-hmm. Kasperi Kapanen looks poised to play with one of Malkin or Crosby. And Andreas Janssen is going to be one of the better forwards on a pretty uh, thin New Jersey forward group at this point in time. And so he might quite reasonably get a ton of ice time and power play time, in which case his raw counting totals should go up more than they would have automatically gone up anyway if he regressed to the mean a little bit. So there's probably going to be a certain amount of chirping like this is the kind of thing that like michael trachos or whatever likes to do you, you know like it'll just be like oh andreas Janssen has 21 points in 35 games or something and it'll be totally devoid of context but it'll make a talking point for five days yeah so yeah. just a heads up so there i think i think the moves that we made uh were reasonable but i think it's fair to say that we we downgraded in terms of depth and we're hoping that the um kind of huge amount huge amount of lottery tickets that we have in terms of the depth players will result in us finding a combination that makes the downgrade in talent uh not be particularly or sorry the downgrade in production the downgrade in expected production not be particularly steep right and enough for the pretty large upgrade of of um sorry troy brody Brody, tj brody i should say geez (laughs) thinking about uh thinking about leafs of yore yeah. Uh, would make the upgrade of TJ Brody over, you know, CC or Barry, whichever one was in the top four at the time. Um, you know, that should hopefully account for uh, the, the the expected loss in production in, in depth and yeah. more than make up for it, ideally. Yep. So I'd say that they're probably better on merit. This is a perfectly reasonable way to go about it, but they're yeah. forwards. So, yep. Uh, we signed Travis Dermott. There's only so much to say about this at this point because... We've been saying ba- the same thing about Travis Dermott for three yeah, years. I know. So maybe this can be a shorter segment because Travis Dermott has killed it in third pair minutes. He hasn't done too much. 
in terms of top four minutes. A he's lot of a people, little bit there. He's played a little bit. He has. Right. And this year he had, you know, respectable shot totals in those minutes that he did play. It's hard to decontextualize those or to contextualize those because they're, we don't have enough information about like, yeah. when was he doing that? Was he getting on at the end of a shift? Tyler Dillo used to talk about this stuff where it's like, you can still play top lines, but if you get them when they're running back to their own zone and they're tired after a minute and you've just come on and you're fresh, you're going to look better than the person whose job it actually is to shut them down when they come on the ice the first time. Right. So it, there's there's a bit of unknowns uh, there. We, I mean, in general, Dermot wasn't heavily trusted to step up by Keefe until he kind of had no choice due to injury. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's no shame in that, right? Because he was a depth defenseman. There were, there were guys who I think we would all trust more than Dermot in, in those roles, and that that's fine. That's his lot on, on the team. But this is one of those things where I'm going to have to see Dermot perform in a top-four role before I'm really confident of him doing that. And that's, I guess, just some sort of prospect or new player, young player pessimism that I think you and I both tend to have. Mm-hmm. Um, that until, you know, a guy without a huge track record of stepping up actually does it, we're a little skeptical of their potential to do that. Now, Dermot, at worst, is a very, very good uh, third-pair guy. Yeah. Right? And I think he does have the chance to, to you know, be a capable uh, second-pairing, you know, player, someone who can live on a second-pairing and, and do all right. Uh, he's going to have to be on the right side, uh, it seems, because there's a huge logjam on the left. Um, but I guess there's a huge logjam everywhere, isn't there? Yeah, and again, that's not accidental. That said, Cal Dupas had an interesting quote where he talked mm-hmm. about, you know, in four years, T.J. Brody's contract will be winding down, and we're hoping that Travis Dermott has moved up by then. Now, you know, GMs can say a lot of things, but it's interesting that they explicitly talk about projecting him that long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the short term, uh, again, like, what more could you ask out of this deal? You know, Travis Dermott is... It's basically his qualifying offer. We didn't mention the term, yeah. but it's like one year at 840k, something like that. Yeah, uh, I think it's 872 or 872, something like that. 872, sorry. Yeah, but uh, the point is, it's completely variable. To be more than worth it, he just has to be a really good third-pair guy, which he already is at the age of 23. He has the potential to be worth more than that. Like, you can say maybe they should have given him term or something and made, like, a, a nice bet there. He wouldn't but... want a term, though. He, he would have wanted no. a prove-it deal. Yeah, because he's got a lot to prove, and this could be his chance to set himself up to make some money. And, and putting put another way, like... I think almost no matter what happens this year, barring a horrific injury, Travis Dermott will get a minimum contract from someone next year. Yeah, like... like, like you know, he, yeah. he's not, going, he's not going, at risk of washing out of the NHL. Yeah. This um, seems to be like a deal where it's like there was very little that had to be done once you kind of rule out term. Yeah, so like, like he, he's yeah. not going to accept low... Or he's not going to accept term on a low AAV because... Like, worst case scenario, he's just going to get... And this is absolute worst case scenario. He's just going to pick up another minimum contract... Not another. A minimum contract next year. And he wouldn't lose that much relative to signing a two-year deal at 900 k Yeah. And the scenario where we do that is, like, what? We're non-qualifying him? Yeah. Which is... You know, that's not likely. So, 
Yeah, I think that this is fine. Again, Caldubas didn't have to do very much. No. You send him the qualifying offer. Nobody does low or mid-level offer sheets anymore, although I've said a million times that they should, but until they do, it doesn't matter. And he doesn't have a ton of points. He doesn't have a ton of time on ice. He doesn't have any of those things right. that he, tend he, to drive he, salaries, even if he were going to arbitration, by the way, which he's not. Uh, like, the, there was no way for this to go big. Yeah, he'll have those rights next year. But yeah, he, he hasn't done enough to earn a term deal with, like, a relatively higher salary, right? Like, mm-hmm. at least would rightly say, you have, like, why would we pay for that? You haven't established it yet. He's not going to accept term for a, you know, relatively cheap one. Like, the least would be happy with two years at a mill. Why would Travis Dermott? Yeah, absolutely. So, you put all that together, and I think you have to conclude that this is, in my best Pierre Lebrun voice, a great deal for both sides. Yeah. <laughs> Dermott will reasonably want to back himself and think, look, I can I can claim that fourth spot on the Leafs defense. Yeah. And right? when I does, do, I'm gonna make more money next year. Yeah, he's gonna he'll he'll if he puts himself in contention and performs reasonably well there, then yeah, he's looking at like salary starting in the twos. Yeah. Right? Uh, like, at what the least. Hall got? And and you know, if he really starts to show his stuff at a higher level, even better. You, you know like He's in a spot to really dream a little bit because he's still reasonably young. He's reasonably capable. The team seems interested in him. There are all these things that add up. Yeah, I largely agree with that. So how do you see the pairs shaking out this year? And again, like the forwards, it's a bit of a fool's errand to forecast that right now because a lot will be determined by training camp battles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's it's a game of musical chairs. There's not enough spots for everyone. So, you know, we're... It, by committing ourselves to saying, oh, this is what I think the fourth line should be, there's every chance that looks silly. Right. Um, and the same is true for the third pair. But, you know, for the content, we're going to do it anyway. So what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it seems pretty obvious your starting top pair is Riley Brody. Yep. Uh, and then your next one is probably at least start Muzzin and Hall. Yeah, I think Hall did enough there to at least give him the inside track on that position. I think, you know, the top three spots are more or less set in stone. The fourth spot, far less so, but I don't see anyone with a stronger case than Hall. I think it's very clear that Muzzin is, is the driver of that pairing, but, mm-hmm. you know, Hall's not holding him back like like a lot of other players did yeah. that we tried. So, yeah, all credit to Justin. Yeah, so Hall has the job until someone takes it from him, which yeah. is true of all jobs. It's just that that's a bit open. And then you get to the third pairing, and it feels like maybe it's Lettinen Dermot with Bogosian in the seventh. Because, mm-hmm. uh, again, Miko Lettinen is kind of tearing it up over in the KHL. I've always been a bit lower on the value of defenseman goals than maybe some people. But the fact is, he's doing really well over there and he's coming over here. And I assume that we're giving him a chance. Yeah, he didn't come over here to, to sit, and actually the same is true of a guy who neither of us mentioned when it came to the forwards, uh, Alexei Barabanov. Yeah, I slipped him in there. Oh, did you? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't give myself too much credit, because like I said his name once, but like... <laughs> it's okay, I, I, I never listen when you're talking anyway, so <laughs> I probably just didn't hear Our it. podcast doesn't make any sense. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he could come over. It sounds a bit more like he's going to be in tough. Whereas Lettinen, everyone is talking like, okay, this guy is going to make the team for sure. Um, yeah. And that's just me trying to read the tea leaves on how this is done. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, yeah, so I think, again, Dermot is going to get it and then Latin. And then we got Bogosian for a reason. And so a lot of people have wondered, are we going to do a 7-Eleven? Which is not just a charming retail chain of convenience stores, but also an orientation of your defense and forwards. And so would the Leafs run seven defensemen? That actually takes another job out of the forwards, which is already very crowded, but we could do it. And then you have Bogosian as kind of a penalty kill specialist slash depth guy uh, while still being able to play Lednan and Dermot, who they all seem to like. We thought that maybe another deal might be coming centered around Justin Hall. It seems like maybe that's not going to happen. And Calubus is just saying, yeah, work it out. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think, again, it's, it's, it's given Keith many options. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be the case that we see quite a bit of rotation this year. Now, so much is up in the air. We don't know what the schedule is going to look like. We don't know what the taxi squad situation is going to look like, if there's going to be one. Right. Um, so th- this might just be the case of, of Dubis trying to give as much flexibility to the coaching staff as possible and say, okay, look, you have a bunch of different options. You can go 11-7 if you want. You have you have the, the, the depth guy who's really good at the PK. You have this... Um, European guy who's scoring tons of goals. You have Dermot, you know, who you, you've worked with before uh, as a depth option. Sandine is in there. And it's going to be really, I guess, one, one potentially awkward thing for the Leafs is that if the AHL doesn't happen and, you know, well, what happens to Sandine? Is he just losing a year of development? I, I don't think it makes him a better player to just practice. I think game situations mm-hmm. and game time is really what drives player improvement. Um, we haven't worked out a loan for him to go back to Sweden or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so, although you, know, you would what think happens... that, I mean, uh, I guess we, I don't know what our ongoing opportunity would be to even do that at this point. But like, they're going to want him playing somewhere, and they've yeah. they've set this up in a way that implies he's going to be demoted and he's waiver exempt. And same with Liljegren. Like, I don't think that they put all these names in front of Sandine. Because they intend to play him in the NHL this year. Like, maybe he can make the decision for them by just coming in and kicking ass, but it sounds like they're planning on him playing somewhere else. Presumably yeah, the NHL. Yeah, it's not clear where that, someone else is, where that somewhere else is. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, that said, though, I think those top seven are going to be the top seven in some combination. Just based yes. on a combination of status and contracts and waivers. I agree. Yeah, so I I guess we'll see how they, they pan out. And, you, you know, as much as we've joked about stuff like Zach Bogosian and everything like that, a Dermot-Bogosian third pair is fine. A Lettinen-Bogosian third pair I could also see being fine. It's, you know... Uh, agreed. Yeah. Um, so... Bogosian also does provide some PK value and. I mean, I generally think it's a little silly to overweight that because, you know, so much of the game is spent 5-on-5 five five relative to 4-on-5. To mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that, that is a point in his favor that I think, you know, we, we often we often centralize on 5-on-5 five five play because it is the majority of time on ice, but it's not all of it. Yeah. So that's a little point in his favor, right? And I think one thing, I think coaches really like to have... Um, their rosters be such that they are comfortable in all situations, right? So that they're comfortable saying, okay, if there's a game where we take five penalties, are, are we going to be okay? And I think that's why those PK guys sort of get, maybe get a bit more love than uh, among coaches than 
their stats would suggest. Mm-hmm. It's because they play into that risk aversion idea of like, okay, in this unlikely but possible situation, will we still be okay? Will we will we be able to survive or will it be like a, a complete embarrassment? Yeah. And for the record, so. if you're worried about your job security, it is actually quite rational to prioritize not getting super embarrassed <laughs> as a coach, right? Like, even if Zach Bogosian isn't that great, but if you have some sort of glaring area where you don't have enough PK guys and then one time in a critical game you give up three power play goals or something like that, that probably tells more on your job security that you didn't prepare for that. So, something to keep in mind, I guess. Yep. Okay, so I think that kind of wraps it up for the roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm surprised we actually got an hour out of that. Blood from a stone, but we we were prepared well from the pandemic where we can talk for hours about nothing. Yes. <laughs> and you, the delightful listeners, have the joy of <laughs> Thank you for enduring this. us. <laughs> You're wonderful and we love you so much. Um, did we want to talk a bit about Eric Joyce? Um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's worth noting. Uh, and this, this had a, an interesting comment section on our on our site mm-hmm. and I, I think it, it's worth being spoken about you know more directly on our end yeah um okay so the Leafs hired Eric Joyce as their director of hockey strategy which to me is like corporate speak for we like this guy so we made up a role for him yeah and I mean the most obvious direct evidence of that is they didn't have one before mm-hmm. and so the job appears to be coming into existence at the same time as the first applicant. <laughs> so so this is how, you know, across many, many industries, how, how people move across companies, especially at higher levels, where uh, it's clear that Joyce has uh, a champion in either Kyle Dubas or Brendan Shanahan, one of the two, who he knows through his, his dealings when he was with Florida. Um. And, you know, it's, of course, worth mentioning that there's there's a big power struggle in Florida in the time that Joyce was there. And I'm really, basically, none of what we're going to talk about is about Joyce specifically. Yes, I suppose it's probably worth just laying out who Joyce is before we kind sure. of move on from that big picture. So Eric Joyce had a bit of an unusual road to the NHL. He was actually trained at West Point, which is the United States Military College. He served in Iraq. He came back. He taught counterterrorism classes. And apparently at one point, after he was teaching, Vinny Viola, who is the Florida Panthers owner and who is also himself ex-military, said, come work with me with the Florida Panthers. And while Joyce had played NCAA hockey, he didn't have a whole lot of other experience, which is probably relevant when this came along in 2014. After a couple of years of being assistant to the general manager, which is again kind of just we'd like to have you around and that's your job. He became an assistant general manager with no preposition, which is actually a change of status. He ran the AHL team uh, since that time in 2016 when he got promoted. For a bit there, he kind of worked with the computer boys as they were so-called. And he apparently did a lot to run the team during the interregnum between Dale Talon's two tenures. They kicked him upstairs for a year because he was kind of erratic and bad. Things didn't go super well, and they brought him back. And so now the Florida Panthers have replaced Dale Talon with Bill Zito, and Joyce has come onto the market. You kind of wonder if Joyce looked around and said, okay, I'm not going to be the GM here. Maybe it's time to start looking for other jobs. 
And it seems the Leafs have made a point of pouncing on him to the extent that they seemingly made up a job title to get him into the room. Yes. Mm-hmm. So thank you. It's good to get all that background, you know, mm-hmm. out of the way because uh, otherwise, yeah, a lot of people, you know, this is not a highly publicized thing. I don't think the Leafs even have, they, they didn't do a press conference about it or anything like that. It wasn't really um, big news. I haven't seen it really mentioned anywhere other than our site, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, as I was mentioning before, uh, is a very common way for people to, I guess, move industries or for uh, executives to hop across teams, not just in the NHL, but generally, right? Where they know a guy and that guy is just, you know, um, or yeah, a team or an organization knows a guy and they just bring that guy on because like, hey, we know him, we like him, he's going to be good. Um, this happens all the time across every industry. So there's nothing particularly unusual about this, but it's worth noting in the context of the Leafs' uh, talk about being more progressive and more, um, I guess, willing to look at communities that are underrepresented in NHL front offices and in the NHL generally, and their willingness to hire them. Uh, because the Leafs have talked about this a fair bit. Uh, they made news when they signed Noel Needham as a scout, and, and Kyle Dubas's use of blind scouting reports was, uh, I think, deservedly lauded as a move that would help uh, counteract the inherent systemic and subconscious biases made by NHL decision makers, by decision makers across anyone, where people favor um, candidates that are similar to themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a very human nature. Um, now, this hiring is a little bit uh, counter to that in, in some ways, in that it's a guy that the Leafs probably liked, and they just created a position for him. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it's worth pointing out that these types of hires overwhelmingly are going to go to people uh, who are either in the old boys club or what I'll call the new boys club, which is the old boys club, but they believe in math. <laughs> yep. Right. But it's not functionally any different. It, it's a guy who was brought into hockey because of, uh, of you know, impressing, uh, in this case, it seems Vinny Viola, mm-hmm. uh, was recruited into hockey with no, you know, really relevant experience and then has leveraged that into uh, having, you know, probably through his good work, having a network and using that to, you know, continue his career within this field. There's nothing wrong with Joyce for doing so. Um, but this is the exact type of hire that perpetuates a lot of the systemic biases that we see because underrepresented communities are far less likely to get that initial kind of networking opportunity and uh, because they often don't work directly in, in hockey and they are also less likely to get it because they don't look like the people who are already working in hockey and therefore they are less likely to be kind of specifically um I guess, sought after mm-hmm. or, sought, or particularly related to on the part of these NHL decision makers because, as we just said, people tend to be drawn to candidates and other um, or candidates who have similar backgrounds to them, who look the same as them, who talk the same as them, who are brought up the same way as them. It's a human that nature thing. Mm-hmm. So, w- again, this has nothing to do with Joyce specifically. It has everything to do with... Um, pointing out that the process by which the processes by which the Leafs hired him are not really at are they're not really simpatico with the idea of 
going out of their way to find um, talent from underrepresented communities and promoting them uh, or giving them opportunities instead. Mm -hmm. It's worth saying, not every single person in an organization, in any organization, is going to uh, kind of fulfill the, these uh, categories. Not every single person in an organization is going to be hired with a full, honest job search, right? And again, that's true of every single industry, but I think it's worth pointing out. So that was a lot of rambling, but am I kind of making my point at least somewhat clear? Yeah, I think so. The reality is this was a job that looks like it was made up for a guy that we like. And that is what it is. Jobs don't get made up for people who don't have a pre-existing relationship, usually. I think Kyle Dubas is a good GM. He seems like a nice guy. He seems like he's quite progressive. By the standards of the NHL. And that's kind of a low bar that he's had to clear. But the truth is, is that he still likes people he knows. You know, he, he's hired Sheldon Keefe at every level he's had possible. He's seemingly drafted out of the, the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And then we have Eric Joyce, who is, by all accounts, a very bright guy, bit of a contrarian, wears black hats, all that stuff that Kyle Dubas reasonably values in management councils. But he's a guy who's been to Sloan and that sort of stuff. But the result is that, you know, you do this over and over again and you say, okay, sure, but he's a really good candidate. We really wanted him to have him here. We think he can help our team and that's fine. And then you look around and you've hired a ton of people who look like you. And Kyle Dubas has gotten, you know, credit for hiring Noel Needham and Haley Wickenheiser. And that's great. And that's to his credit. It's just, I don't think people like to hear this, but it's like, He's benefiting from the fact that the bar is pretty low and he still kind of operates on that old school spectrum where he hires people he knows and likes. Right. And the people who you know? any NHL executive knows and likes are very likely to be white guys because those are the people who are often in the industry and those are the people who, are, who also often have it easier to foster relationships with NHL decision makers because of their similarity in terms of background and style and race and gender and all that stuff mm -hmm. so yeah this, this stuff this stuff matters yeah. right um and what it comes down to is you have to make an effort to find people from underrepresented communities they exist they often work in hockey but they often don't that wasn't a barrier for for joyce he he didn't work in hockey until 2014 and mm -hmm. was hired presumably because of um, his army background and a connection with, with Viola. Right. So you have to, you have to make an effort to, to find these people. It's not going to be the path of least resistance or of, Oh, there's this guy who I already know and have a preexisting relationship with. And I think he'd be good, a good person to have on the team. That is very unlikely to actually diversify your um, management team or your business or your executive team um, in you know, any real way, mm -hmm. well, at least when it comes to life experiences or, or, or race or gender or sexuality or, or whatever. Yeah. And I know, right. again, this is not something that people really like to hear. And especially if you're kind of a progressive leaning white guy listening to this who likes Kyle Dubas, so am I. But 
you know, I do think that it's significant when you pick this guy out of the market and you make up a job for him. You know, that it's it, like, it just has to be noted that tends to happen for people who are already kind of in the same circles. You know, like this is the sort of thing, the sort of advantage in terms of privilege that tends to stick to white men in hockey and that other people don't tend to get as much. And I, I don't mean to put a damper about over this hire per se, because I don't, for all I know, Joyce is going to contribute meaningfully in group discussions. Well, but we, we know very little about Joyce's yeah. competence, and we know very little about what this position actually does. Yeah, you know, he's given a couple of public interviews. Uh, most prominently was one from the brief period where he was a sort of full GM under, you know, Tom Rowe. But he didn't say anything all that novel. He just sounded like a kind of progressive hockey executive generally without saying a whole lot of specifics. Okay, fine. But the reason that we felt compelled to bring this up, aside from the hire itself, was that in a lot of the comment sections, there were a lot of people who were pretty defensive about the idea that this might not be a 100% merit-based hire. Or that at least there are other factors going into it. And, you know, I think we just have to acknowledge that there are. Yeah, and, and I think what it comes down to is I'm firmly of the belief that, look, being an NHL executive is, is, is a difficult job. We're not hiring astronauts. There are many people who I think would do fine in NHL front offices in various roles, mm -hmm. whether it's on an analytics team, whether it's in player development, whether it's uh, on on, a le on the legal side or the cap side or, or anything like that, I think there are lots and lots of people who are qualified. I don't. I I simply don't believe that working in the NHL is so hard that you know you have to have this hockey experience and you have to be a lifer and like you know we can't hire from other uh, industries unless it happens to be a white guy, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I like. I I don't believe that. I think lots of people are qualified for this, and what it comes down to is, are you willing to? You know, when you're filling out your, your front office and you're filling out different areas of your organization, are you willing to make an effort to try and find people who, one, may not necessarily already be in the applicant pool? And, uh, and two, are you willing to actually prioritize diversity and not just pay lip service to it? Mm -hmm. Right? Are you willing to go the extra mile and say, okay, look, we, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, we get someone who doesn't just look or think or act like us here? Mm -hmm. or doesn't have the same life experience or, or doesn't come from the same uh, background of, you know, being a, a hockey lifer. Yeah. And that's the does thing that is Joyce has a distinct professional background, but <laughs> again, you know, he doesn't diversify the group in, and in other ways. I, I remember an anecdote uh, that Justin Bourne relayed when uh, he, he was at the athletic where I think the Leafs were hiring for some sort of scouting role. And, um, Bourne said, oh, I, I know a guy who, who might be decent for this. And Duba said, we, ha we have a lot of guys. Like, you know, if, if, if he's a white guy, we have a lot of people like that. We should probably look for something different. And that, that's a credit to Dubas. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, assuming I haven't butchered that story, I think that was the gist of it. Um, that, that's very good. But that also has to occur at higher levels, too. Mm -hmm. Right? And look, this isn't a Kyle Dubas is the devil and he's a demon and this is, he's a terrible racist person. It's none of that. It's of pointing out that there are there's a pattern of hires that Dubas has made where he has seemingly um, gone out of his way to 
attract people who he he is familiar with and who he knows without much of a you know real formal interview and you know job opening process mm-hmm. and those people are one in the Leafs case almost entirely white men and overwhelmingly likely just by the nature of where Kyle Davis grew up and his background and you know being in the hockey industry they're overwhelmingly likely in the future if this happens to also continue to be white men yeah and I think that is worth pointing out because I do not believe that those are the only people who are capable of doing the job or the only people who want to to be clear exactly yeah and so yeah I I recognize that that's not a pleasant conversation to have but I think it has to come up and you know it's it's probably significant at this point just because again there was a clear desire to go out and get this candidate and when people talk about the old boys club it's not always that concrete but I think in this case you can kind of look at it and say hey they they had their favorite and they picked them so yeah, and okay. again this happens across all industries mm-hmm. and you know in, in my career I've, I've been the benefit of this I've gotten opportunities in, in academia that arose because my advisor has a good reputation and uh, you know a professor who knows my advisor is like oh do you have any students oh yeah our Arvin's our, our decent let's talk to him about this Mm-hmm. Right. And that that happens across so many industries. But and I, to some extent, that that's natural. But at the same time, you know, I'm not saying any, every single one of those hires is, is, is bad or whatever, but you have to kind of balance that with like, OK, you know, at some point we have to actually make sure we go outside of our Rolodex here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and we have to make sure we're actually opening ourselves up to a wider group of people so that we don't end up with an organization where all the important decision makers look the same way. Yeah. And act the same way and have the same or have similar experiences. Agreed. So yeah. Uh, do we want to finish on the high note of making fun of people or <laughs> we can, we can. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. You know what? I, I normally try to be, I don't know if I try to be a nice guy, actually. That's probably giving myself too much credit on this podcast. <laughs> but, like... The... <laughs> I, 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 if I speak, I'm in big, in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Say nothing on this topic. So, uh, the thing is, is that there are a lot of Leaf blogs. A lot of Leaf writers. Lots of people want to write or about or listen to the Leafs. There's a lot of demand for that content. We are obviously beneficiaries of it. But the truth is, is that even though we're in a loose sense in competition, because let's be honest, this isn't our day job anyway, uh, we get along, I think, pretty well with the people at Leafs Nation and Maple Leafs Hot Stove and all this sort of stuff. And I think that they often have interesting things to say. Yeah, yeah I, I think generally speaking, we, it, it, it's not a zero-sum game or really a competition where it's like, oh, you know, Fuck Kevin Papetti. He he writes for he used to write for PPP. Now he writes for MOHS. He's dead to me. He's like, betrayed no, us. Yeah, like there's 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 plenty of room for everyone, and it gives us more content and gives us more insights and more things to talk about. Yeah, and you know what? That's all, that's all well and good, but here's the thing: if you're gonna do it, try and be a a little bit, a little bit realistic, or like just try to act like Earth is the planet on which you spend most of your time. You know. Because I gotta say, every now and then, editor and leaf just goes friggin' bananas. And I know that you know, not to get too inside baseball here, but in terms of their written content, they have quotas to meet. And to be clear, there have been people who are 
who are perfectly good bloggers who have written for them. But like the whole editorial stance seems to kind of be that the Leafs are the best team ever to exist in the history of the whole world. Kyle Dubas deserves a halo and a crown. And it's a remarkable thing that they don't just win the cup every year. And this kind of got to, um, I would say it reached a kind of height of absurdity recently. (laughs) And it was, uh, uh, a quote from them. They said their top three defensemen, it's the Leafs, Riley Muzzin, the Leafs top three defensemen, yeah, yeah, Riley Muzzin and Brody match up or exceed every blue line in the league. And some people said, "Hey, wait a minute, what?" And then <laughs> some, they said, some "People were like, what the fuck?" Yeah, there were some questions in response to that. And so then they said, "Okay, which teams have a better top three? And someone responded and was like. Well, Nashville, Vegas, St. Louis, Tampa, Carolina, <laughs> list of like eighteen, Colorado, Minnesota, and they responded to that by basically being like, "Man, eh, whatever." And then they also said "whole equals Pareko" in terms of their explanation for why the Leafs match or exceed the St. Louis Blues defensively. I'm sorry for being a bit of a dick here, but it's like. Stop doing this, man. (laughs) This is crazy. Does anyone believe that? Like, do you really in your heart of hearts believe that that's true? I don't see how anyone can. And it's like, come on. (laughs) You know, like, that's just my feeling about a lot of this. It's just like, come on, man. And it's fine to have reasonable difference of opinion, but at a certain point, you're just being batshit. What is going on? um... You know, we, we often couch our, our takes here. Yeah. We're not really what much for, for hot takes, but I will make a bold proclamation that Colton Pareko is a better hockey player than Justin Hall. Holy shit. Stop the press. I'm, I'm willing to step out on that ledge. I, I, I would trade Justin Hall for Colton Pareko. I would too. I mean, hopefully St. Louis adds, right? You know, get a few draft picks in there. How, how could I say something so controversial and <laughs> so brave? <laughs> Heroes of the discourse. But it's like, I do think at some point, you should try not to say stuff that's obviously really silly. And by the way, it doesn't mean you can't be wrong. We're all wrong. I've been wrong a million times. But oh, it's yeah, like... probably said stuff... I, on this podcast, I was confused about whether Mikheyev was better on the left wing or the right wing because I genuinely don't remember at this point. Everyone, like, We make yeah. mistakes all the time. Yeah, like that happens and that's fine. That's not like... This is definitely a Pobody's nerfic thing. But at a certain point, it's like you kind of have to either know that this is crazy or you're just well i mean or you're nuts but it's like at a certain point it's like you're just kind of playing to the gallery here and saying like absolutely bonkers stuff and then it kind of makes the rounds on twitter and you think that that that's also one of the annoying things this, this is partially what gives these fans a terrible yeah. reputation i mean the, the, main, the main thing that gives us a terrible reputation is that we're obnoxious oh yeah no like, we're an unbearable and you know what like it's what we deserve and to be clear if, that, if, you know, if, if they didn't exist and this tweet didn't exist, the world would be the same. But yes. it's like... But this, this adds to it. Because most of the time when some someone puts like an unhinged Leafs take on Twitter, they have 25 followers. And it's like, okay, they're, they're just, you know, they're just some dude with bad hockey opinions. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right? But editor and Leaf has like, you know, 4,000 Twitter followers or whatever. And this, this gets seen as like a... <laughs> this gets seen as like, oh, this is what Leaf fans think. Yeah. And, and, it, you know. and it's just fucking insane. It's like, 
have you seen that that tweet where it's like if you reply to something i retweeted and insist on including me in the reply please do not fucking embarrass me yeah <laughs> it's just that over and over it's again that. it's like if you're if you're a leaf blogger please just don't, please don't embarrass me please don't like please don't let manny elk retweet you and be like lol 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 and just like ruin Leafs Twitter or hockey Twitter for a day and just making fun of this one take. Yeah. It, it hurts all of us. <laughs> we all suffer for your sins. Anyway, it'll do it with like a graphic of like the Leafs Hulk thing that he found somewhere. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, anyway, but it's like... <laughs> the sad thing is like there's no larger point here other than it's like, please just don't do this. I don't know what else to say. It's like... You don't, like, you can have bold takes or anything like that. You can be like, I think Morgan Riley is, like, a Norris candidate or something like that, I if guess. You're like, I, it's like, if you're like, Morgan Riley is better than people think, and I would put him in, like, my top 15 defensemen or whatever. It's like, okay, I don't agree, but, like, That's fine. there's some logic there. I, I, under what logic is Justin Hall equal to Colton Pareko? Yeah, I didn't even mention he has just Toronto as being better than Tampa Bay. Which, like, on what basis? In what universe? And, you know, he's presumably talking about the defense there. But anyway. Like, well, and the, the Nashville one. For, so for me, Nashville has the best top three in, in uh, defensemen. I think so. In, in the league. Yeah. Um, and I think this editor-in-chief person said, so, so someone said Nashville, uh, Josie, Ekholm, Ellis. Mm-hmm. And uh, the editor-in-chief guy said, yeah, maybe they're better than Toronto. Yeah, maybe. That would be like, if... if Someone said, yeah, maybe Nashville's top six is better than Toronto's. Yeah, I like, mean... that's how unhinged it is. Yeah, it's it's like... There's, anyway, just... We don't always have to live in reality, but it's nice to visit. And you should try, is what I should think. I recognize, again, we're kind of being mean here. But at the same time, it's like, this was the dumbest tweet I've ever seen. Come on. It's really up there. I know. And, like, I... Stop it. That's all. Stop it. <laughs> so that's the end of our podcast. <laughs> Pretty much. All right. Yeah. So uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, this one was a bit of a trip. I think <laughs> we, we really we all over the place here. Pretty wide. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like Leonardo DiCaprio on The Revenant. You know, this is <laughs> showing our showing our range as, as podcasters. Uh, he was in The Revenant, right? That was him. <laughs> Nobody listens to us for our movie takes, I hope, because I don't even know. I think that's the one he actually won the Academy Award for. Yeah, that was the one where he like got eaten by a bear. Yeah, that was rough. Uh, <laughs> all right, so thank you all for listening, especially for the, to this podcast. <laughs> this has been a wild um, ride. Yeah, you can find all of mine and Fulham stuff at com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Harvey and AT Fulhamish. We will see you in a couple weeks where we'll go around the NHL and talk about how other teams did in this offseason. So, see you then. <laughs>